You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 44, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, featuring Brad, Leo, Margo, Cliff, Rick, Sharon, Roman, Charlie, Bruce, Steve, Mama, Kurt, Zoe, Luke, Al, and the girl from Peyton Place, Martin. Yes. Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to do some autobiography? Yes. So this is probably our one audible of Mm -hmm. this season because we did, and it's a little kind of outside of the box audible for us because we wanted to do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because Tarantino's uh, cinema speculation book has come out and we went and saw him speak publicly in one of the worst Q&As that's ever been recorded in human history that lasted eight years. Yeah. I think we were in the Paramount it was, Theater. It was nine years. Yeah, yeah, like I lost a decade of my life that night and just wanted to leave, but you made me stay. Yeah, y'all, Jacob, tickets. we were halfway through and Jacob's like, can we go? So these are $100 a ticket. It's like, we're fucking staying. And it didn't, it didn't get better. No, it got worse, actually. Yeah, it was one it of the on. most disappointing... Part, things in my life because Tarantino means so much to both of us. And I was like, this is gonna be so cool for us, like our friendship and this podcast, like to see him together and to have it be not just weak, but horrible was an affront. <laughs> it was like, let's just get this out of the way because I don't want to spend the whole episode <laughs> ripping on this Q and a, which really was, and I'm not exaggerating one of the worst live events I've ever attended. And I've seen, a lot of shitty indie bands in like church yeah. basements. And this was worse than that. This was in the fucking Paramount theater with possibly the greatest working director. Like yeah. right now, at least the most iconoclastic most yeah. yeah, or, or most influential to our generation being interviewed apparently by a homeless man that they dragged in from the streets who had a club foot and couldn't formulate whole sentences, let alone questions. That's not an exaggeration. Yeah. Cause it's, Louis Black, who's this longtime Austin film scene staple, who founded South by and, and the Austin Chronicle, right? Um, but is now more or less just a rambling degenerate. 
For real. Who, like, yeah, they should take him out back behind the state side and just shoot him. Because, like... It was horrible. It was sort of like watching old reruns of... Remember the SNL skit, the Chris Farley show, where Chris Farley would have, like, Martin Scorsese on, and he'd yep. be like, you remember when you made Goodfellas? That was really cool. Like, that was the level of questioning and interrogation that we were getting, and, like, to the point that even fucking Tarantino... You would see him get like borderline exasperated where like Lewis Black would say something and he'd be like, he would have to pull like, how do I, I, I have an answer for it's this. Not it's question. not a question. Yeah. I would, cause he'd be like, cause they start talking about like Robert Aldrich and shit and like, you know, cause for those who haven't read it yet, cinema speculation. And the one good thing about the night is that every ticket that was sold, everybody got the book. A $100 book. So I got the... T- <laughs> we, we all purchased a $100 book and lost 10 years of our lives. Um, but, like, I'd gotten to dig into this, and it's pretty good. It's a Tarantino's first collection of actual film criticism um, that he's been kind of threatening us with for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really a piece of autobiography, which is where the kind of jumping off point for this episode came from because he's telling through bookends, really uh, the story of young Quentin Tarantino's life. Um, Because I believe the first chapter is called little Q goes to the big movies. And it's about through the seventies, how he was a kid and his mom, who was a single mother, a waitress at the time would drop him off at uh, the movie theaters, you know, around basically the Valley in Los Angeles. And he would just see every movie in the seventies and like, you know, stuff like the getaway rolling thunder, rolling thunder, like the things we've already really associated with him and his filmography to date. Um, and it's his long ruminations on them. Like you get to actual critical insight. He, uh, like the getaway es- essay is really great because he interviews, like Walter Hill and Peter Bogdanovich before he passed. Mm. Um, and you get a lot of like background on their making and everything. And it's pretty, pretty cool text that unfortunately we got probably the worst promo tour stop for because like they did it at the new Beverly and like Sean Fennessy interviewed him. And there was some, another one out in New York where they got an actual like luminary to talk to him. Rodriguez was in the audience. Rodriguez was watching it from one of the opera booths. Like, cause you saw a bunch of little weirdos basically make their way to his booth to just go say hi to Robert Rodriguez, which, okay, that's a whole other story I'm not getting into. Yeah. But like you could have picked anybody yeah. to do it. You could have gotten like Tim Lee. Linklater lives here. Linklater lives yeah. here. Like anybody, but no, we get this guy who looks like he's had a head injury and has been sleeping in a gutter for ten days. No, like, it's insane. And then he said the N word on stage twice, unprovoked. We're not talking about Tarantino. Lewis Black did where he rambled on, and again, it was one of his non-questions where he was like. You know, everybody talks about your movies and like violence. violence and N-word this and N-word that. Only he said the full word. And like, I think there's, I, you know, it's a lot more humanity to it than that. And then Tarantino just ran with it and like answered it like it was a normal question. But I was sitting there in the audience and I was like, he just said it. He's, he said the N-word. Like nobody brought that out of him or like pulled it out. 
He said the fucking N-word. Like, that's, this is one of the most insane things I've ever fucking witnessed. And you know me, like, I'm not Mr. Sensitivity, but like, and I wasn't like offended or anything. I was more just like, huh, that happened. Wild. And then Tarantino, because one of the big selling points of the event is that he does like a live reading from a portion of his book. The final chapter. The final chapter he reads to us, which is about um, this guy who lived, this black guy who lived in you know his apartment for a short time with he and his mother um, and would take him to the movies and talk to him about it and how you know little Q looked up to him the whole time. Floyd, right? Floyd is the yeah. name. Correct. Um, and Tarantino proceeds to do all of Floyd's dialogue in exaggerated Tarantino black dude voice. Which, after hearing Lewis Black say the N-word twice, Tarantino doing, you know, black dude voice and dropping the N-word himself, I was like, you know what? It's a good thing them fucking cell phones are locked up in those little cases that we did when we walked in because there would be some cries for cancellation at this point. It was just, that's the last thing I want to say. Yeah. Like, it was one of the worst fucking events I've ever attended. I hated every second of it. Um, at least we were together. <laughs> at least we, yeah, at least we had, and the, you know what? Oh, the, one of the worst things too, is we went to, I'm not going to say the restaurant cause I, I'll shame you Lewis black, but I won't throw out any Austin institutions that sadly gave me gas during the entire thing. Oh, I had it real bad. I was cause we ate those crab pies cr and I was ripping <laughs> the hardest fucking farts next to you. And it was just like three hours of just me just totally going like full Auschwitz on that. I auditorium. thought it was just me. You, Cause we'll, we, so we had these amazing seats. We thought we were, we were in the wrong seat and there was like no chairs in front of oh, us. That's right. They made us move. And it was like we these long, I'm, I'm tall and we're both tall guys. I'm like, great. I can stretch my legs out, but we got to get these next time. These two people show up like 10 minutes before the show. We're in their seat. We moved back one. So we're farting on their heads the whole time. And I kind of felt that was how it should be. Yeah. And then a lady complained about the dude who made us move because he kept like playing with his hair. Like during the one intermission, which Tarantino, I, I swear Tarantino forced them to have an intermission because he couldn't take it anymore. And I, we both thought a new like interviewer was yep. going to come out for the second half. No such luck, sadly. But a lady comes up to me and is like, hey, this guy, what's up with his fucking hair, man? Like, we all need to see it too. And I was like, she's right. Because I kept like having to angle around whatever way his head was tilted. Just whole night sucked. But... The other good thing that it gave us outside of just a solid book to read is an actual idea for an episode, which is Tarantino doing autobiography through cinema. Because I started thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, and how it might actually be the first chapter in the final stretch of Quentin Tarantino's like grand project, like the end of his career which is him telling his own story to a certain degree because once upon a time in Hollywood for me has always operated as a piece of film criticism as much as it has a work of like great narrative and just another like stellar Quentin Tarantino hangout picture because to me this is when he starts clearing his throat and being like let me tell you about the era that made me and with once upon a time it's like his proustian recollections of being a little kid you know because in 69 tarantino's only like what 
five or yeah. whatever years old, but it's him remembering essentially the miasma that was kind of floating around him of Vietnam, hippies coming in, you know, old actors exiting Hollywood and, and giving way to the new Hollywood movement with that easy rider kind of ushered in. And then cinema speculation is almost like the second chapter mm. in that because it's him telling about like the tale of the formative movies that made him and then would ultimately give us true romance and one of the greatest film careers in history. Does that line of thinking make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also am off on this episode, we are going to get into some other autobiographical films of recent years of, of other great filmmakers kind of looking back. I think that's all- been the big theme of 2022 because we have, we're going to have movies here by Steven Spielberg by James Gray, by David fucking Cronenberg. And we're going to talk about Brian De Palma, Abel Ferrara, Joanna Hogg. George Lucas. Yeah, yeah, George Lucas. Like some of the great moments of cinematic autobiography because in the last couple years, we've kind of been inundated with them. And now in this year, it's like our old masters coming home to be like, let me in one way or another, some ways very directly, like the Fablemans and Armageddon Time, and then very indirectly basically packaging their own kind of old dude thoughts about their life inside of a narrative like crimes of the future. But like, they're coming back to be like, this is it. This is like my grand summation. And I think once upon a time in Hollywood is, is like one of the great examples of this, of at least like starting Tarantino off and being like, this is the final chapter. This is it for me. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And if that's something you said over text too, is they're Rosetta Stones. I mean, they're Rosetta Stones to look back at a career of a filmmaker or an artist right. and say, oh, this is where it came from. And here's kind of like the quote unquote real life stuff that I was drawing from. And while Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not his autobiography, it is an autobiography of that time period when he was like reared and which kind of controlled his life. And um, or kind of made the artist um, as he is. I also think that your point about it being the end of an era and the beginning of another one is something that kind of comes out with all of these films. Um, Armageddon Time, Fablemans, Crimes of the Future are all about the kind of death of one generation and the, and the beginning of another. Not generation of people, maybe, but of art, you know. And There's an apocalypse happening for almost all of our main characters yes like they're learning about either the end of innocence the end of their own career or frankly in like crimes of the future the end end of of humanity itself absolutely and and they all have that kind of wild bunch feel of the the saying goodbye to an era of like there's no room for the outlaw anymore and it's very much you know crimes of the future is this aging artist who's saying oh i have to change like physically to be part of the new you know the new flesh the new humanity Armageddon time is, you know, 1980. It is when Reagan was elected and it basically very obviously is saying, this is how we got to 2022. This is how we got Trump. This was the beginning of the end. Um, and that, that's how I took it. And I think Fablemans, as you said, is, as you said, the end of innocence. And also it's him kind of entering the new Hollywood. Like he was one of the ones who helped create and also destroy the new Hollywood with Jaws and with the blockbuster. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot there, a lot of crossover um, and the idea of just of the artist um, kind of, like you said, looking back, not so wistfully sometimes. Well, and the other thing that to bring it back to Tarantino is that 
we shouldn't forget the fact that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book is his true first written novel, or yeah. like his his published work, which is itself another act of film criticism on top of being, let's say, another fetishistic kind of throwback in the true Tarantino mold to the old novelizations that he loved growing up and would devour, you know, sometimes without having seen the actual movie itself. Only way to actually see it. Yeah, because, like, one of Tarantino's favorite novelizations actually spawned one of these episodes when, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book was coming out. He talked a lot about September 30th, 1955, which was his favorite novelization was of that movie, but apparently was totally different than James Bridges' movie. But that book and him raving about it gave us, going back and looking at all of Bridges' work, including his own version of that story, which we quite liked, and as we kind of already pointed out, was basically James Bridges' autobiography. Yes. So it's almost like a real kind of snake eating its own tail Ouroboros thing happening with us to where we're talking about our own inspirations for these dumb podcast episodes. <laughs> well, and I think that's what this episode is really excited about was all of these films in particular, once upon a time in Hollywood um, and the Fablemans um, both hit me so hard as a, as a film lover um, they're, they're complex films, they're autobiographical. And I felt my, I felt very seen in these of, of my, I mean, you and I have both, we pray to the church of, of cinema, you know, we, we are at that altar every day and to see films that are so about that obsession, how it can really kind of take over your life. Um, and as we see in the Fablemans, there's a dark side to that too. You know, um, it, it can, it's not all sunshine and roses. Um, and I think, but Once Upon a Time is also when I kind of re-fell in love with Tarantino. Um, his his kind of like Django Unchained and Glorious Bastards era when he was getting more and more violent. And I have no problem with violence. We all know that. But this is going to sound like an asshole thing, but a lot of people started like loving it just for that. Um, I, had, I had friends in my life who goes, oh, I'm a Tarantino fan. It's like, why do you like him? And so they were like, oh, I, was, you know, I love all that crazy gore. And that was only, I think, post-Kill um, Bill, moving to the later years. And when this came out, Once Upon a Time, I had a lot of friends who were disappointed. They go, oh, I, I, the end was good. And I'm like, this is my favorite Tarantino movie. Yeah, because, let's, you know, and let's throw that out there. I think for both of us, this is the one we consider the best Tarantino movie. Absolutely. At least our favorite if not the, I think the argument could be made that this is his very best film. I think so too. I mean, the only thing close for me is maybe actually Pulp Fiction because that was so important to me growing up. Well, let's talk about that too. Is I think one of the main differences and one of the reasons that people might have been thrown off by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it feels like the first movie since Jackie Brown. Mm. And maybe a little, there's some death proof in there, but even that had more of a genre hook than those yeah. early films. But stuff like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown were just as much shaggy hangout movies yep. where you just spent time with the characters. And like the violence and action, most of that were just little bursts and punctuation marks. Yes. You know? There's barely any in Reservoir Dogs. And then yeah. he kind of veers with Kill Bill and starts making the other. Because in my head, I still adhere, not necessarily to, because there is this old quote. 
back in the day when I think Kill Bill first came out is that he talked about how there were basically there was like a binary inside of his own filmography to where you have the real world movies, which were essentially Reservoir Dogs, uh, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. And then you had the Grindhouse movies, which were like From Dust Till Dawn and then um, Kill, Kill Bill. Bill. And he explained it, which I always thought this was clever in the most Tarantino way to where he was like, Kill Bill was the movie that like, you know, the Wallaces would go see on date night, Mm. which I liked. And that's clever, but I don't buy it 100% because his movies evolved from there. Like that kind of applies for Kill Bill, but I don't, you know, I don't think the Wallaces are going to see Inglorious Bastards. You know, nor do I think Inglorious Bastards is a grindhouse movie. Like, I think that's him doing a European art movie crossed with a men on a mission, like war doing movie an Aldrich. <laughs> that he just wanted to do that. You know, yeah. like Death Proof, maybe because that's technically two movies essentially spliced into one. And that movie has a little more of the hangout vibe. But like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood feels like it takes place in the same universe as... Uh, you know, the early Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown because it's just like, we're just hanging out with these guys and seeing their life and really working with their struggles in this very specific microcosm that they float through. And then it just happens that their microcosm is invaded by two different forces, right? And that it's the new Hollywood force that's pushing, you know, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth out as performers or at least forcing them to change and making, Mm -hmm. making Rick in the end, go to Italy and shoot Italian Westerns. And then the other force is Manson. Yeah. And just the idea of the hippie movement, you know, the the, dark side of the the end of the Mm sixties, the whole thing that mad men also dealt with, you know, quite probably the best of all, um, is just how do these steadfast, square-jawed men who are used to their own power structures and being in charge, how do they deal with that being questioned by these outside forces? And that's the question that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually asks, is that it's like, how does a guy like Rick Dalton, how does this existential threat affect him, and how does he change or does he remain a rock? So, and to me, that's like one of the great questions of all time. It's, I love this movie so fucking much. I, when I saw this in the theater, I went to 35 millimeter at South Lamar um, here in Austin. Yep. And I went the next day and just saw it again. I saw this movie seven times in the theaters. You are more of the like watch movie million, million times versus me. But like this movie hit me on, like I literally got out and I was buzzing. Like my body was buzzing. Very similar when I got out of Fableman's, honestly, where I felt like this movie was like made for me. I hope that doesn't sound like douchey, but like when you're so connected to a film, you're like, there's like no one else in the theater. Like it's just you and the fucking movie. And it felt like that for me. And I think the end just hits me so hard every time I watch it of the, the what if, right? The what if of so many things, the what if of if Sharon Tate had lived, if Roman Polanski had had a different career, um, if those like those lantern jawed heroes were allowed to mix mix with the world of, of Roman Polanski and that the new art house, new Hollywood, what could have come from that? And 
Well, and that's where the work of film criticism sort of, sort of comes from, right? Is right. that it's literally him. Like, there's a reason that his book is called Cinema Speculation. What if? Because he's doing the same thing. There's a reason that the end cue of uh, The Life and Time of Judge Roy Bean plays before the end credits of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is because he's literally calling back to the title card from that movie, which goes at the very end, this isn't the way it happened, but it should have been. It's, oh, it makes me, it hits me hard, dude. Like, it really, like, I, I, I feel so, I don't know. This really messes me up every time I watch it. I cry so hard. We watched this with my parents on Thanksgiving it Day. It was great. And right. I lost it all over again. Like, there are whole scenes in this that, like, I can't contain the tears that come up because I think it hits on a certain level. Well, you know, one you mentioned in the, you quote in our intro, you know, Petty Duke um, is maybe my favorite scene in the film. And it's, it's Sharon Tate. And I very much that I love the, the center section of the film. It's very much Pulp Fiction. It's these, all, all these characters going about their day in Los Angeles and they're, they're kind of crossing over here and there, but not really. Um, and her day is waking up after a party the night before, um, at the Playboy Mansion, and she is now she's hanging going, out with Mama Cass. Hanging out with Mama Cass, but now she's on her day to go get tested herbals from Clue Gallagher, rest in peace, um, for her husband. Um, and while she's walking around, realizes that her movie Wrecking Crew um, is playing at this this Westwood Theater, and in this very um, we were talking off mic, very similar to the scene of Hattori Hanzo with the sword, this very ma- majestic kind of reverential scene of, um, with, you know, Kill Bill, it's, it's, you know, can I, can I grab, can I hold it? Yes, you may. And this is, can I come inside your church? And it starts and it's them welcoming in like one of the true disciples of cinema, like the new deity that's being minted in real time via these movies. Exactly. And oh my God, you're here. And the, the also the feeling of she was on her way up. You know, there was a what if for Sharon Tate. If she was going to be a, a star, like she was going to be a huge star. And I think she really would have been. I think Tarantino is saying that. But also the the wonderful scene of her watching herself and hearing people laugh and her remembering training with Bruce Lee. It it hits me it hits me so in the gut of the the possibilities of just Sharon Tate alone um and what the death of the 60s and the death of her meant to culture personally to her to Roman Polanski um but only cinema could do that can give that what if well and the other thing we do need to talk about is that Tarantino in a backdoor way is also asking the question about Roman Polanski about how this changed his life because he's only on the margins and in a couple scenes of the movie, a lot like how Charles Manson is used too Mm -hmm. in the same way, but like powerful, you know, from the very first opening scene where Rick goes and meets with Marvin Schwartz played by an amazing Al Pacino and possibly the last great, performance of his career that the Irishman yeah yeah the Irishman comes after this so it's like that's probably the last great performance of his career but the the two of them put together like this is like remembering what Pacino can do when you just let him fucking cook and really wind up to a pitch but like he has this really humiliating meeting with this new agent who's essentially being like look you're fucked here. Like all they're doing is having you lose fights on TV. It's their way of like shuffling you out of the rotation. 
what if instead I have you go work with this new guy named Sergio Corbucci, the other Sergio, you know, who famously uh, directed Burt Reynolds in Navajo Joe. Who Rick is. Who Rick is supposed to be. Rick is Burt Reynolds and Cliff Booth is an amalgamation of Hal Needham and uh, McQueen's stunt guy, whose name is escaping me mm. at the moment. But these, those are the two great relationships, you know, real life relationships that Tarantino is kind of riffing on: is McQueen stunt guy, and then Bert and Hal, who we've already talked about. Who we've already talked about ad nauseum. <laughs> um, but he's basically saying, "Hey, look, you can go work with this guy Sergio Corbucci," which in real life. Burt Reynolds thought that his agent was literally saying, go work with Sergio Leone because no way. Yeah. He, he mistook it. He signed on to Navajo Joe thinking he was working with Leone got over there and famously hated working on Navajo Joe and even dubbed Sergio Corbucci, the wrong Sergio. So like, ouch, like this is actually a chapter of his real life that they're replicating on screen. But, like, he has this humiliating meeting. He goes home, but then he he realizes that fucking Roman Polanski has moved in next door to him on Cielo Drive. And all of a sudden, his, his mind lights up, and he literally says, I could be one pool party away from starring in the next Polanski movie. And it's like, but what Tarantino is essentially saying is that, like, Rosemary's Baby was the biggest movie of its time. Yeah. You know, in that moment, he was on the cusp he being Roman Polanski of changing Hollywood of this European influence coming in and remolding yeah. it in their image. He's years away from Chinatown. He's, yeah. he's a couple years away from Chinatown. And also at the time he's overseas prepping a movie that you and I watched together and is not great and would be taken over by, you know, the awesome Mike Nichols is Day of the Dolphin. Woo! The George C. Scott <laughs> talks to dolphins movie in order to train them to become CIA assassins. And, it's and as plant strange bombs on the bottom of boats. Yeah, it's as strange as it fucking sounds. But the question Tarantino is asking is along with Sharon Tate like what was taken from us? Like in terms of Roman Polanski and like we can sit here too and probably problematically spin out the does Polanski go down the dark path that he did before? Does, I mean, and you can also ask the question, does he even make Chinatown? Right. You know, does he even make the tenant? Does he even do these? He certainly doesn't make the tenant without this because he's not exiled to, you know, Europe after his horrible crimes, but does he even commit he's cr these crimes because Sharon Tate's still in his life and he's still happy? Cause even if you've seen the, Again, obviously problematic documentary, Wanted and Desired, yep. about Roman Polanski, which more or less takes his side in the matters and spells out how he was exiled to Europe and kind of paints cheated. him as like a yeah. persecuted dude. How much you want to buy into that or not is, you know, up to the viewer. But like, even that documentary kind of posits the idea that like his entire life changed because of Manson. Because he lost Sharon Tate and with her, like he was happy. He'd escaped Poland and the, the occupation and the Holocaust and like his family being murdered. And like he, he lived through all of this horrible shit and emerged on the other side as a great filmmaker and like married the light of his life. One of the most beautiful women in the world. And then she's taken from him by tragedy and his and child. That, 
Yeah, and his child, and it changes his, you know, entire makeup almost at a genetic level. It's, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, I remember when they first um, announced he was working on this film, Tarantino's working on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, people were losing their shit. They were really they were like, oh my God, how can he tactfully do the Tate murders? And I, even myself, I was like, oh man, I don't know if you want to go down that path. Um, and it's actually one of his more, while well, he just does change the story um, and Sharon does not die. And as we're saying, there's a what if. You know what's crazy though, not to like cut you off real quick, is that none of us thought about that. None of us were like, oh, that's right. This is the guy who made Inglorious Bastards and killed Hitler at the end. What if he kills the man? Like, yeah, it's it's just funny how like, and we do this time and time again. We, I want to say, being the fucking idiot mob of film Twitter out there. But like anytime something remotely controversial comes up, it becomes like this like pearl clutching moral outrage. I'm on this side, not that side. And a lot of people forget like this dude's done this before. Like he's, he's tackled thorny like topics and sometimes with grace and other times without it. But like he always zags when you expect him to zig and bucks your expectations. And it's, it's just amazing in hindsight that nobody was like, well, it's Tarantino. He's probably going to fuck with us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, agreed. And there's there are two scenes in this film that uh, really I remember seeing this for the first time and having no idea where it was going. And the first is um, at Spawn Ranch, and you have um, your Texas Chainsaw sequence. It's and it's just I love every shot, every fucking second. I think it's one of the greatest sequences that Tarantino. I mean, it's our favorite movie, but it's so perfect as a an exercise too as a craftsman of like, he's like, I'm going to do my fucking Toby Hooper scene. Right. And what I love about he does with the, the idea of spawn ranch was as a symbol of this is where, you know, I was a cowboy. He used to make something. He used to make movies at spawn ranch. It's all I am. Right. When that died, something festered up, something sprouted out there. And it was this, this, this dark hippie thing growing from the, almost like the ground out in the, the desert and was allowed to take roots and then spread out into Los Angeles and then into the culture. Right. And but well, you know, and that keeps with the history of Hollywood and spawn ranch, because beyond even the Manson family living there, like that place was rented off for low rent productions, like Al Adamson movies. Oh, okay. And, yeah. You know, because I, I remember talking to Gary Kent who worked with Adamson a whole bunch about how Charles Manson was on the set of like Satan sadists mm. and that biker picture that Al Adamson made with um, Russ Tamblin as the lead. And like they asked Charlie and he even, as they called him, cause I, I remember like talking to Gary Ken about him, this and being like, he tells the story all the time about how like Manson and his weird greasy, like hippie buddies, including tax were like on set for Satan Sadist. And like, they promised um, them that they were going to them being the production, that they were going to fix their dune buggies that they were working on. And like kept flaking out on them on the, in true like hippie fashion to the point that like Gary Kent and a couple of the others were basically like, look, 
if you don't fix these like we paid you to do, we're going to kick the fucking shit out of you. And they scared Manson into actually wow. like fixing the buggies on there. But these were like, like Spawn Ranch, to your point, was the festering kind of greenhouse that was not only growing these things that would that would go out and infect like an evil way, but it was also housing these outsider pieces of art that were going to drive-ins and like the stuff that Tarantino was consuming and would eventually change like the face of Hollywood. Like Satan Sadist doesn't exist without Easy Rider, you right. know, an Easy Rider ushering in this whole era of motorcycle gang movies that guys like Al Adamson and then AIP, who you presume is uh, the are the ones or at least a, a company like that or Avco Embassy or one of those or Dimension Films. Yeah, this Arkoff shit. Were the yeah. ones who were uh, funding Rick's like war picture. The 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 five. The Ten five fists of McCluskey. McCluskey. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. 14 fists. The 14 fists of McCluskey is that they were definitely funding that movie, right? Like that straight up looks like a Corman riff. Yeah. Um, but you, you, know, <coughs> you have that scene, right? You know, at, at Spawn Ranch. And then I remember seeing that in the theater and being like, oh my God, Cliff's going to fucking die. Like he's dead. He's going to go back. They're going to find Spawn dead and he's going to get murdered by this, these, these women. Um, the only thing that made me. <clears throat> never think they were supposed to find George Spawn dead is the fact that Reynolds was playing him before his death. Oh. Like Bruce Dern replaces him. And I knew that in the back of my head, just being so a I giant nerd. Yeah. So I was like, ah, oh. like he obviously finds him and at least talks to him or something because like, I know that was Bert's role before he passed. And without that knowledge, an audience is like, oh my God, where is this going? And the final scene of, again, I had totally forgotten what he did with Hitler and Glorious Bastards. And, when they show up first at um, Cliff's at Cliff and you know Cliff and Rick's, I'm like, oh, they're gonna kill them. Like we're gonna get them dead, and then they're gonna go kill Sharon. So they're gonna we're basically mixing this into the story. It's gonna be this horrible thing because that last thirty minutes of the you know Kurt Russell you know saying every moment of the day where they are and coming home and like going out to dinner is absolutely terrifying because. If you know history, you know where this is going. And I am like, oh, my God, I do not want to see this. I, I am so dreading the end of this film. And I was. And when it, you realize it's the one violent scene, I think, out of Tarantino's career where it feels so righteous, like the righteous power of, oh, my God, they're changing history. And it's also a fun, gory scene from Tarantino. But it's, He's doing bastards, but he's doing the hyper even pulpier version of bastards where he's just revising history in real time. Well, yeah, and with, with bastards, what's interesting is that even though Hitler dies in that the Holocaust still happened, this feels like he's changing a thing. Like the, the violence is not allowed to take place. Like you're seeing the full right turn that felt more like, Oh, I want to see us kill Hitler, which is great to see. But this is like, Oh my God, like he's changing history and we're seeing these, I'm seeing Brad Pitt just own these fucking people. And it, the audience was hooping and hollering and just like... It's one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a movie theater. Hands down. We're all losing it. And my friend I saw with didn't know the history. He goes, oh, I didn't know that's what happened. He goes, I'm like, that's not what happened. That that wasn't real. Was, and he's like, really? I'm like, dude, it's a horror. And I had to, I had to like over dinner after explain. It was weird. And a lot of people I don't think actually were, were that knowledgeable about the tape murders. A lot of people of our age group. 
and younger were like, oh, really? That's well, what Well, our whole generation has the memories of goldfish. Absolutely. So, but is this the point where we talk about Brad Pitt? Yeah. Like, this is... This is it. Without a doubt. Not only the finest performance of his career, but this is one of the finest straight-up movie star performances of our lifetime. Like, every time I watch it, I go, this is what a movie star should look like, and he knows it. I am getting chills sitting here, and I remember my dad, my parents saw this um, by my recommendation. They they moved to um, L.A. in 71, so they were, like, right after this, and they lived there for years. My mom was teaching at a bilingual school. My dad was getting his master's, um, and so they remember this time very clearly. I said, oh, you guys got to see this. I'd love to hear your point of view on, like, what the Valley was like um, at that time or and what, you know, Rodeo Drive was and everything. And I remember my dad saying, he's like, he's like, Leo is great. Uh, Brad Pitt was fine. And I go, I'm going to stop you there, dad. Um, and look, dad, I know you birthed me, but you're full of shit. Oh, and I will call it my movie shit. Like he usually like, I love my dad and he'll back down pretty quickly. I'll just start, I'll start throwing shit out and just completely <laughs> just go I'm like, no dad, I'm not going to let this, this aggression stand. And um, he, the, the thought I had after talking to my dad about it was that you have, um, you have Leo very much representing, even in modern days, like the method actor, like the new era of actors that was coming in, in the new Hollywood. Right. Um, and you have Brad Pitt leaning into, I'm a movie star. And I think you have these two kind of like things in the film. You even have the scene with Leo of being on set of like kind of becoming more of a, an actor, you know, and being a real actor on and, and pulling from and pulling in this amazing performance. And you have Brad just being fucking, he's being Brad Pitt too. He's being Brad Pitt. He's being Cliff. And there's some of the bre- like absolute greatest Brad Pitt isms in this movie. The Bruce Lee scene we're talking about of, yeah, you kind of did. did. I mean, I, did did I say something funny? Mm, yeah, you kind of did. I don't think that you would be much more than a stain <laughs> on Cassius Clay's trunks. Well, and then you know, I think of that. I think of his laugh when he's on acid, and then Tex comes in the door, and he's like, <laughs> "Is that?" It's his almost his laugh from Fight Club. Oh, I've with- stolen wholesale from that last sequence. The the thing that I steal and use in everyday life is when you know Tex bursts in with the gun. Can I help you? Like I use that every day. Like in it's one of my ultimate deflection methods at the bar where someone comes up and is super pissed or whatever and is just acting a fool and I'll be like, "Can I help you?" And it's just like it's so great. Like he is so fucking funny in this movie and like gets all of the best line deliveries and like gets to play like the rock to to Rick Dalton, who's yeah. just completely collapsing in the front of us. The best friend you could ask for. Well, and that's where I wanted to go with this, too, is that, like, is this the greatest movie ever made about male friendship? Because that's where I stand on it. I don't think, like, male best friends have ever been portrayed in a more realistic way in that everybody, and that's kind of the point of the movie, is that everybody needs a Cliff Booth in their life. Like, everybody needs a stuntman. 
You know, the guy who comes in and even when you're acting like an asshole or like way in over your head or probably bitten off more than you can chew, whatever fucking euphemism or ridiculous old phrase you want to use, like they're the one who's there to either talk some sense into you or support you despite the fact that they probably don't believe in you at all. He, I, I agree. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head of just male friendship movies. I mean, this one, I mean, the only thing would be in terms of young friendship would be Stand By Me. I think it's a great film about the the youth, the friends of our youth. Um, I mean, Goodwill Hunting would be another good one that comes to the top of my mind. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that just, again, the last line from, from Cliff of I try, you know. Of, oh, my God. You want to talk about the part of the movie that makes me cry every time? You're a good friend, Cliff. I try. Well, it's such a the the scene you know preceding that where you have Kurt telling the the what happened in the last couple of months of him saying basically you have um uh you have Rick Dalton saying I'm going to hang it up probably I'm going to sell the house which early on in the film says you buy you don't rent he's like I'm going to sell the house and I am going to buy a condo which is like him basically cashing in his chips and Cliff silently just kind of taking it, you know, of sounds and, like a good plan and not knowing for, cause he is, he also is hitched his wagon to the star of, of Rick Dalton as a stuntman. It's like his success, Rick's success is, is Cliff's success. Right. Well, and he knows it too. Cause he yeah. even says it early in the movie too. My days of being a stuntman are over. I'm your driver. Yeah. And I like doing, I, I like driving. And he's like, I like doing stuff for you. I like, and it's like, I think I believe that, you know, and he's his boy. Like, that's what he wants to do. Like, this is the first version of entourage. There's, there's definitely some, yeah, very much the, the posse that surrounds an actor, but not in that sycophantic, like using way. Like, you know, Cliff, I think does love Rick and will like, you know, even that earlier scene you're talking about, you know, is this embarrassing meeting with, with, with Schwartz and, he takes him back, and after after Rick says, "I live next to Herman Polanski," and I love Pitt's delivery of, "So you're feeling better," and it's like that wonderful friend thing of like knowing his friend so well. It's like, I can tell you you talked yourself out of this, and he's been there for him. Or again, he takes him the next day. You're Rick fucking Dalton. Yeah, you know that that wonderful well, that, that kind of affirming, which we need, we all need, you know. When there's also the great movie t- the moment too, even before that, where Rick's going on his rant about being like, "I don't want to be in fucking Italian westerns. Nobody fucking likes Italian westerns. How many of them you actually seen?" Like he knows Rick is full of shit, but again, yeah, it's the guy who can talk you down off of whatever cliff, whether it be a decision-making cliff, a logic cliff, whatever. Like he just knows you well enough that he can look you dead in the eye and be like, all right, man, like just calm down. Like everything's going to be fine. Well, And let's not forget the scene of they get back after this long day. He goes, you want to watch my episode of FBI? I figure we would. I got a six pack in the back, order a pizza. And then, of course, the the multi the you know oft memed uh, of them watching the episode and you know Dalton pointing, you were we were watching it together and just say, to hear their commentary. Oh, I like that shot. The guy's a fucking asshole. It's so, but it's kind of how we watch it together. That's Bobby Murphy, good guy. You know, but it's also I want to be there with them. Imagine I want to be in 1969 with a guy watching his TV episode with his stuntman and then talking about giving their live commentary. It's everything I want in life. I know that's maybe another favorite scene of mine in the, in the movie. Um, and it's about male friendship and watching and, and just bullshitting and saying like, oh, I like that job, you know, everything. Well, and the other thing too, is that the friendship goes both ways and that 
one of the things that I think has been dissected to a ridiculous degree is the idea that Cliff killed his wife. Yeah. Which is... He's Robert Wagner. He's essentially Robert Wagner. Um, you know, his wife was Natalie Wood. There's even a direct reference to Natalie Wood, like in the scene where we get the run one flashback of Cliff and his wife on the boat. But one of the things that I think is lost in the conversation about that is because, like, of course, that began became another ridiculous film Twitter argument. Like, there were three preposterous film Twitter arguments and criticisms that arose out of this movie. One was all the Bruce Lee stuff and whether yeah. or not that was racist because Brad Pitt beat him in a fight. Well, number one, it's a fantasy in Cliff's own head that are we seeing the truth of it or are we seeing Cliff's version of the truth of it? Like, we'll never actually know because also that gets us to, to point number two. Cliff is a fucking murderer. Like, there's no... Like, everybody was like... Did he kill his wife? Did he not? Like in the book, it's made pretty explicit that Cliff, if he didn't kill his wife, is a fucking murderer in other degrees because he kills the owner of Brandy, the original owner of Brandy. Like he, you get a whole backstory for his awesome pit bull dog in that he basically rescued this dog from being abused by this shitty ass like California redneck and broke the dude's neck in his living room and then just took his dog. So like Cliff bad person but that's the point is that one of the things and why this movie is one of the greatest explorations of male friendship is that it's also about how like cliff supports this egotistical narcissistic somewhat talented dickhead who's now burned out and become a has-been and is still propping him up basically because he believes in him he believes in his friend and he wants it's not just a self-interest like obviously if rick continues to succeed then cliff continues to succeed too yeah. but i also believe that cliff is fine living in his fucking trailer behind the van nuys drive-in living with brandy eating macaroni and cheese and watching like taggart at the end of every night you know what i'm saying like he's he would be good either way. He's going to succeed. And part of the, the book, the, the, the novelization that Tarantino writes, like we get full on illustrations of Cliff's time during the war as a war hero, how he watched like Antonioni movies like overseas when he was stationed. And like you get full on reviews of like him talking about La Aventura and stuff and like why he loved like European films as opposed to American films. Like the book is really interesting and is really like feels like the dry run for cinema speculation. But like where he's supporting him, this is about Rick also supporting a guy that he probably knows is guilty, like has done some shit in his life that's fucked up, but accepting the guy for that and just being like, well, that's my best friend. Nobody else is going to have my back and he always does. So like, I got to have his. So, and it's an illustration of like, in a weird way, cancel culture. Yeah. Because like, one, I was going to think about that too. One of the weird things about once upon a time in Hollywood is how many quote unquote canceled actors he fills that with, including Jim Stacy. Yeah. Jim Stacy, who would go on to be, convicted of child pornography or is it child molestation? It's some, it's, it's some horrible. kid diddling nonsense that nobody should ever do. 
And like one of the last things that we see, Jim Stacy is is driving away on a motorcycle, which a motorcycle would take his arm, one arm and leg in a wreck. Yep. So like and then you have Rebecca Gayhart playing uh, Cliff's wife, who famously, you know, killed a child in a DUI accident. I'm not sure it was a DUI, but she did. But it she was, ran someone over. Yeah, and that's why she doesn't exist. McQueen, anymore. in hindsight, was a wife beater, and like a lot of just horrible shit has come out since then. Horrible person. Um, Emil Hirsch famously choked uh, that woman out yep. and got canceled for it. Like Tarantino is very he's per, he's a provocateur ostentatiously that, yeah. peppering these people in amongst like the Kurt Russells and the Zoe Bells and all of his usual yeah. like stock players and, and Polanski too you know the, yeah the ultimate the ultimate figure. like the of all maybe of all time of Hollywood you know pre pre Harvey Weinstein well I've also had the weird theory that at the end right before the grand like showdown with Manson and Cliff and Rick. Is that, um, you know, we're in the car with Tex Watson and the Manson girls and the Manson girl goes off on this like long rant about why they should kill uh, Rick Dalton because he basically comes out pitcher of margaritas in hand when they come up his street and screams at them in one of the funniest fucking scenes of the whole movie. One of Leo's best. Won't you get that mechanical asshole (laughs) off my street? But like they, they recognize that it's Rick Dalton. And they're like, oh, my God, from Bounty Law. That's crazy. I grew up watching Bounty Law. And then the one girl in the back goes, dig this, man, and goes on this full-on tirade about how they should kill Rick Dalton because he was a TV star. All the TV stars of that time were killers, were always playing cowboys or cops or whatever. And they, in turn, through their violence, were teaching you know, this younger generation who grew up with it to kill and that violence is good. It's a scream so, two shit. So of, what yeah. they should do is cancel out this violence. It feels like an argument that film Twitter would wager against like an aging artist and trying to reevaluate their work in an attempt to cancel it. And it feels like Tarantino not so presenting a not so thinly veiled commentary on cancel culture about like, cause one of my buddies, Phil Nobile jr. From Fangoria even said this to me, he goes, what if this entire movie is about a bunch of young people trying to cancel their old idols? Like that's what the movie is about. And that's how it ends because they walk up the street. They try to cancel Rick Dalton, but end up meeting cliff booth, his stunt man who annihilates them. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, it is It is kind of, I mean, often he likes to kind of do a middle finger to that, uh, the, the pearl clutching, right? you know, as you said. Um, and I, I like that read a lot. Yeah, it's just, it's all kind of embedded in there because I feel like the casting of all these people, especially an inclusion of Polanski and everything, is him asking these questions and like posing them to like, how do you feel about this? Like, how do you feel about against violence, even if it is justified in the like the people's minds and then is turned against them? Like, does it become warped at some point mm. or does it or is it righteous in its own like utilization? Like it's it's a pretty weird thread to examine. And obviously, once you start unspooling, it could, you know tear your fingers off <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah do you want to get into the fablemans now because i feel like you're chomping at the bit to talk about this one. Oh, i am 
So The Fablements is Steven Spielberg's newest film, uh, written by Tony Kushner. With Spielberg. With Spielberg. Um, and it's about Spielberg's life. It's about him not so, again, thinly veiled, casting a dude who freakishly looks like him in certain scenes, to the point that I thought there was even some like CGI augmentation to make his face as a young Spielberg like look more like older Spielberg. But it's about him dealing with the thing directly that we've always kind of talked about in the past that's influenced, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., like all these films, and it's his parents' divorce. Yes. And how that kind of irrevocably, like, scarred him as a child and where, like, his love of cinema kind of clashed with that horrible tragedy in his life. I mean, I'm kind of on the same page as you are is that I... Love this fucking movie. Like, I walked out and was like, oh, wow. But I think one of the interesting things for me, and and when I say this, you'll go, oh, yeah, this makes sense for Jacob, is that it's as much the Brian De Palma story as it is the Steven Spielberg story because their kind of narratives and both how they fell in love with cinema and then learned to utilize it while honing their craft are they're almost identical in certain ways. If you use the Fablemans as, let's say, like a, a kind of golden text. This is my movie of the year, hands down. Um, maybe the last two years. Uh, I Similar to what we said about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was jumping up and down when I got out of this movie. I saw it with my friend Andrew and my friend Nora. My friend Andrew and I make films together, so it was also great to see it with him. And we were both just like, just letting this film wash all over us. And I felt, again, uh, inspired as a person who does want to make films by this. But again, it's a very complex view of uh, the relationship between between art and family. And there's a scene, there, there are about three or four scenes in this that I think are some of the best stuff that Spielberg's ever done. And in terms of, not even in terms of like action scenes, which he's you know a master of, but more of uh, character and, and, and blocking and staging of just dialogue scene. And the one in particular I think of that, I keep, I just keep, keeps boiling up in my brain when I think of this movie is the Judd Hirsch scene. Um, and so um, Judd Hirsch plays his great uncle. Um, so his grandmother who just passed away, her brother, who was part of the circus. And uh, his his mother uh, says, oh, he, he frightened me as a child. Um, almost like he, and not in like a bad way, but he was just too much. Like he was this this kind of scary old Jewish man who was a lion tamer. He had started as basically painting shit at the circus and then got called up to the majors where the lion tamer was sick or something. He goes, well, shit, I'm going to go put my head in the fucking lion's jaws, I guess. And it's this scene that in any other filmmaker's hands would have been this cheeseball scene of, you know, boy, you got the art in you and you got to do that and made it very sweet. It's a scary scene that he's, that Spielberg's character, this child is terrified but well, he's the soothsayer. He's the soothsayer, but it's but it's scary. That like tr- his mom literally has the dream before he shows up. Don't let him say, in. Don't let him in the house, and he becomes the soothsayer that they let in, and becomes the the key focal point because then he discovers the great secret about his family through honing his craft with with film. Yeah. Well, and he's you know I was talking to my writing partner about about who's the moral compass of this film. We realized that the, it's more of a North Star, which is like. 
the terror and the beauty of following what you're supposed to be. Um, and I think, but it starts, Judd Hirsch is the one who brings that energy into the house of, I don't think that's true. Really? I don't think there is a North star. I think the movie is about discovering your North star, but I think it's about how there's a complex way to view his interactions with cinema in my head with yeah. this movie and that, it's discovering what all the different things that cinema could be to him. So like when I talk about the parallels with De Palma's real life, like De Palma tells these stories about seeing vertigo for the first time and how vertigo was the movie. I believe it's in Jason Zineman's shock value is that he talks about vertigo is the movie that unlocked two sides of his brain is that he was watching a great story, but the engineer side of his brain was watching it being like, okay, well then the camera moves here and then it goes here and then it cuts to this actor. So the mechanical side of his brain was meeting up with the narrative, like whimsical side of his brain to realize like this, this is how movies are made. And that's what the earliest section with young Sammy Fableman, the opening, the, the opening Steven dialogue, Spielberg. the opening dialogue is literally the thesis. his man of science father, <laughs> yep. which was also De Palma's because De Palma's dad was a heart surgeon. And then she, he also, I believe his mother, it, Mitzi Fableman in the movie played by Michelle Williams was a classical concert pianist. Mm -hmm. yep. I believe De Palma's mother was some sort of artist as well, but he came from a similar background. He grew up in Philadelphia but he had this surgeon mom, artist mother, who became like more or less like a, a den mother to him while his dad went off and became rich and famous as a surgeon in Philadelphia and then had many, many affairs and cheated on his mother and broke her heart, um, which led to his first self-described first film, which I'll get into in a second. But you see with young Sammy Fableman, who's the Steven Spielberg, you know, avatar here, him looking up at, it's the greatest show on earth mm -hmm. is the movie that they're watching and the train wreck in it. And then he asks for a train, you know, for, for Hanukkah, I almost said Christmas, which is another big part of the movie is him exploring how his Judaism, you know, really influenced his view on cinema itself too. But you get a kid then, being, you know, gifted an eight millimeter camera, you know, using his father's at first and then getting his own, but using it to film these model trains and restage the whole sequence from the greatest show on earth. So he's doing the same thing that De Palma was doing is that it's about the mechanical side of your brain linking with the narrative that like suddenly threw like thrilled you and like blew your hair back. And like, how do you create that? Like using these like raw materials, like whatever's like available to you. And then as the movie progresses, it becomes what does cinema do? It becomes both a microscope for truth for him while also being a warm, comforting blanket yeah. that he can use to escape, yeah, complete escape from, from uh, you know, his daily problems. Because for me, the greatest sequence in the Fablemans is when it becomes blowout for two minutes. And he, I watched that scene. I'm like, Jacob's going to shit. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> cause he's asked by his dad. Cause his dad, who's played by Paul Dano and Paul Dano in a performance. That's like very un, Paul Dano. I'm not a huge Dano say. guy, and I love him in this. See, I love Dano I in just about everything. Yeah. You're going to tell me that he's not great in There Will Be Blood. He's fine, but I just don't. What? Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not a big fan of him as an actor. Get fucked. Yeah. But like, Sorry. I think he's. 
He's podcast really, is canceled. <laughs> he's really interesting here because you never really get to see Paul Dano play like the normal straight laced dad. He's normally playing crazy people. Yeah. Like Riddler. religious <laughs> lunatics, the the Riddler. Um, but he did make that one movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan, uh, Wildlife, mm-hmm. which was as a very similar like kind of portrait of like domestic strife that he wasn't in, but he directed and was like got a lot of critical acclaim. Criterion put it out. Good fucking movie. So I wonder if that's why he was picked to be his dad. But anyway, he comes to, you know, young Sammy Fableman and is like, I'm losing your mother. We're going on this camping trip. I need you to put aside this war movie that you're making and, and film this camping trip. And he, he resists or, it or edit it yeah, and edit it together. And then he resists it, but then he puts it together. But during the editing, he finds in the footage, the moment when he recognizes that his mother is cheating on his father, uh, with his, at least emotionally, uncle Benny, yeah. Mm, more she than says that. it was never, but yeah, she says it wasn't. But I mean, you look at that yeah. footage too, and you know there was at least some heavy petting going on. Let's Absolutely, go. but um, some dry humping. But who's played by Seth Rogen? He's great in this. Yeah, who's really really good in this movie. But this is the point where again it it becomes a De Palma parallel because a that entire sequence is edited like the sequences where. Uh, John Travolta is making the sink his own yeah. Sapruder film like in blowout to prove like that the Senator was assassinated and it wasn't just a car wreck. Again, it's about that idea of like, how can I use this craft? And suddenly it's not just about telling simple, you know, train wreck stories. It's about like, Oh my God, I can discover the truth using it and about what's going on with these people, even in our lives. And it can contain this like secret that literally devastates us. And it's like the most cynical in a weird way that Spielberg's ever been and has like linked my brain up with him and and put them together with De Palma because that's what happened to De Palma in real life. Like he literally made a camera rig and caught his dad cheating on his mom. That's what he considers his quote unquote first film that I was referencing before. In that he found him. All the Keith Gordon stuff from yeah, Dress and to Kill. He puts it into Dress to Kill. That's what Dress to Kill and Blowout become like autobiographical pieces for him. And it's also Vertigo. So yeah, there you and go. Vertigo too. It's <laughs> just like he's the Keith Gordon character. He's the nerdy science kid who fell in love with cinema and realized that he could also use it as like a microscope for truth and to catch the people in his life and have this own secret. Like it was blowing my mind, like while watching the Fablemans and being like, Oh shit. Like he's just as much telling the Brian De Palma story as, as he is the Steven Spielberg story. But then there's also the great sequence, which is one of your favorites in the whole movie is when he shoots you know, what is it called? The beach blanket bingo day or the something? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's, the it's, senior it's the, uh, skip day, the senior skip day where they all go to the beach and hang out. And he's filming it with this girl who's like totally like she's lit great. his hair on fire and she's super awesome in it. But he, you know, takes this footage and plays it at prom at the end and he edits it together and puts music to it and everything. But he reveals the two bullies who have been like persecuting him the whole time, mostly for being Jewish. And like he, one he makes look stupid. One, one he makes look like 
the drunken asshole that he's always going to grow up to be. And you know, that's the guy who's going to be 40 and still the same dude in that little hometown of his. And then he makes the other guy look like a total hero. But great God. But the heroic thing makes the guy break down because he sees his own image on screen and realizes that's not who he actually is. It's such an amazing moment when they're in the hallway together and that's he, the scene. he wants to beat the shit out of this kid, but he also wants to understand like how he did that. How did he make him feel that way? And that was the moment where cinema changes again to where Spielberg realizes not only does this allow me to create spectacle and discover the truth, but I can also mold the truth into whatever I want. And then I can make you feel a certain way. It's about manipulation. It's about, it's almost subversive in a way in the, in how he's talking about the movies and saying like, we can tell you the truth or we can tell you the truth that you want to hear and whether or not you accept that is kind of up to you. And it's just that whole sequence is so fucking good. Yeah, that's my those are the two scenes. It's the, it's the one with the great uncle and that are the two that really stand out. And also when he directs the escape to nowhere and he has that scene where he, he directs the kid and he's like, yeah. all your friends are dead. And the kid starts to cry. It's very emotional. That um, feels like because you said you saw in an uh, interview that he dedicates at least one scene to a bunch of his peers. Yeah, so that there's a couple things off of what you were talking about. Um, one is that uh, it, might, it might even been him, but a review I read that is like multiple sequences in the film are tributes to the movie Brett, his his pack that he yeah. came up with. So. Coppola, Lucas, Scorsese, Schrader. Well, the um, Lucas stuff feels like all the American graffiti when he's a teenager about to be a senior in high school, go to the prom. Like, that's all American graffiti. What's the war stuff? That felt like Milius and Coppola to me. Well, and that was one of his first films, was Escape to Nowhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, But I think it is very Milius. And who was was like a big brother figure like Coppola was. When he went to USC. Yeah, and he was like the kind of their big, the big cool like jock kind of guy. You know, the surfer. Um, But another thing is, um, I rewatched the Spielberg documentary for HBO, which I forgotten again how one-to-one everything that happens, even shots of her on the tree is in that documentary of footage that he shot of his mother on that camping trip is his own changing relationship with cinema, even as an adult. And that I was talking to my writing partner about this, but like you have your early films are much more spectacle, you know, um, much more about much more akin to the greatest show on earth, right. Of, he was up until 84 about grand entertainment. Even the, the, the kind of like nuance of close encounters is still about this sense of awe and childlike wonder. And as you move on and he talks about when he met Kate Capshaw, he started to get more serious and especially color purple was his first like kind of full on drama. And from that point on, he started making quote unquote more important films and, and wanting to kind of do more than to just entertain, to do train wrecks. So you have films that are kind of a mix, like Munich, which I feel acts as just a straight-up spy thriller, but at the same time is this very nuanced look at the Palestine-Israeli conflict. Then you have in the same year Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. You have these two sides of this filmmaker and what can be done with cinema. Well, in Schindler's List and Munich in particular also – 
kind of hit on an, another part of the Fableman. His Jewishness. Him, yeah, yeah. Confronting his own Judaism and what that's meant to him. Because one of the big criticisms that came from the Jewish community towards Spielberg all the way up through Schindler's List and really felt like his way of addressing them is that he turned his back on his own Jewishness. Yeah. He hid know? from it. He talks about in the documentary. Yeah, and that yeah. he hid from it, and that was his way of being like, and confronting it head on and being like, what does this mean to me? How do these stories like influence my own life? Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that like the Fablemans even touches on, for, again, from some of the o- earliest scenes. Why are why is my house the only one that doesn't have Christmas lights on it? You know, his dad really forcing, you know, all of the the Jewish songs and the the uh, Hanukkah celebrations and everything, and like really trying to get him to embrace it. But it's like he, because of this horrible thing, the schism that occurred in his family, it's almost like he had to pick and choose which pieces of himself he wanted to move on with and really embrace and which one of those he wanted to turn his back on and his own faith. He kind of turned his back on for a while until he realized like that was just as much a part of him as anything else. So it's like, there's so many kind of like once upon a time in Hollywood, which this plays as a really nice double feature with, I mean, a very long double feature, but a nice one is that this does like that movie kind of become a Rosetta stone where you're looking at it and being like, what does this mean? How do we watch all of these films that we've seen time and time again? How does it inform them? Does it unlock different layers and pieces to them? Like it's a pretty remarkable piece of work. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty towering. And I've, I've the last couple of years, I've not been a huge fan of his, his films, his later films, like the post didn't blow me away. We're just biased. I like, but there's a little bit of the magic's gone. I hate Ready Player One a lot. Um, I don't hate Ready Player One. I like some of the tech stuff in it, but it's not good. Like, I'll never rewatch it. Well, the interesting thing I was thinking about Ready Player One while watching Fablemans, just like how different it obviously felt, was that Ready Player One was him referencing basically an era he helped create. I mean, it's all this eighties culture and like, you know, he produced back to the future. He had his hand on every, basically all of our childhoods in one way or another has been affected by Spielberg. So it was him like diving into this nostalgia pool and trying to do this thing. And I think it's ultimately a failure. And this is like, I think a similar idea, but looking back at the new Hollywood, looking back at the people that inspired him um, and were friends of his, that he kind of came up with um, and, and was just became a filmmaker through. And, um, I just think, you know, again, the scene I don't want to forget, though, too, is just is him meeting John Ford. And, like, I almost lost my mind. Like, my body literally transcended. When all this thing hit me at once where I was like, because he's sitting there, and I'm like, oh, is he going to meet Cecil B. DeMille? I think he was that at that point. And then the turns around, and it's the poster. I'm like, oh, shit, he's going to meet John Ford. And I was like, oh, are they going to show John Ford? There's going to be more of him, like, going back into this room, and we don't hear it. It's going to be, like, this kind of secret thing. Then fucking David Lynch walks in and I literally thought I was just going, did you not know that was happening? I forgot about it. Okay. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I forgot because I, I wish I had, but I knew it was coming. I, cause Lynch, I mean, it's a favorite of both of ours too. I felt like it was hitting me in a lot of different angles of like, Oh my God, I'm seeing like one of my favorite filmmakers play one of my other classic favorite filmmakers 
talking to one of my favorite filmmakers, Spielberg, it was just, it hit me at all these levels. Um, I know they kind of played it for laughs, but like, again, the, the simplicity of like, get the fuck out of my office. And, 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 you know, Lynch is having a great time. Um, but also like him lighting that cigar uh, for an endless amount of time is like like one of the great Lynch gags. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like you, I wonder how much of that was just improvised on set and it was Spielberg standing behind the camera. Like how long is he going to do this for? (laughs) And it does not end. It is the whole, the simplicity of like when the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When it's at the bottom, it's interesting. When in the middle, it's boring. Now get it's the boring out. as shit. <laughs> it's yeah, it's such a tremendous weird cameo for the movie to go out on. But again, it's it's Spielberg like Tarantino paying homage to the things that made him. Like he loved John Ford movies, just like Tarantino loved. I mean, there's no coincidence that '68, the movie that where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, frankly, even takes its title from, is the year that Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West comes out. Yeah. Like, it's in this era, and Tarantino largely credits the first viewing of that film as being the movie that inspired him to want to be a director. He was like, I watched that, and that's when I knew, like, I loved cinema. It's his vertigo. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, with Spielberg, like, he's going, John Ford, those are the guy. Like, that's the guy for me. That's that's the one I wanted to watch. Like, and that's the one I wanted to be when I grow up, you know? And I didn't realize that um, Man of Shot, Lordy Valance was so specifically important to him. That's my favorite John Ford film. And I was like, and I have a fucking lobby card on my wall right over there. And I was like, oh, man. Like, I also, there's moments of just like, wow, I had more in common with the things I love. Well, and Liberty Valance itself is sort of a Rosetta Stone for what we're talking about when we talk about Legend-er. De Palma. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's what we're talking about when we talk about De Palma, talking about his own childhood. Like, But it's him printing the legend. It's the difference between De Palma and Spielberg, where Spielberg's like, I'm going to literalize my childhood and my trauma from divorce and everything. Like I'm going to tell you that story head on with a guy who looks exactly fucking like me cast as young, like Sammy Fableman where De Palma is more like, I'm going to straight up print, print the legend. I'm going to take the pieces of myself and I'm going to use them as like building blocks for a erotic thriller, you know, with dress to kill or for this political thriller in blowout like there's pieces of me in it but it's not me just being like and then i caught my dad the heart surgeon cheating on my you know woe begotten mother yeah you know like it's kind of the interesting contrast between the two did you you told me you never saw the souvenir films i did from not. joanna hogg right no Those are really good companion pieces to these movies we're talking about, too, because those are also autobiographical. Stars Tilda Swinton and her daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne. Um, And it's about Joanna Hogg. You know, Honor is basically playing her in film school in the 80s. Um, The first movie is about her falling in love with this older guy who's a heroin addict and dealing with, like, his struggles with addiction and how that traumatic experience kind of imprinted on herself while she was learning the craft of the, you know that she wanted to study her entire life and the art form that she wanted to study. And then the second movie is about her processing what she learned mm. in the first movie into her own like graduate thesis film in in London. They're if you've never seen them, they're really really good. Totally different, yeah, from the Fablemans or Once Upon a 
upon a time in Hollywood because they're very cold and sterile and distanced and they're not feeding you the emotions as easily as those other two movies are. But if you've never seen them, they, they definitely fit into the conversation we're having. Well, the other one I just kept thinking about watching Fablemans was just Tree of Life. I mean, it's the same. Yeah, it's definitely. The, it's, you have, you know, the beginning, the thesis uh, from Jessica Chastain, that there's two ways of life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And you have the father who's this very left brain, very um, kind of iron fisted. There are rules and her who's very much as angelic kind of creature um and it's cool i'd be a great double feature with hablemans because two wildly different filmmakers both looking back at their childhoods and well knight of cups kind of plays as a a second chapter oh yeah after that all the stuff with brian dennehy yeah it doesn't work as well at all but yeah. like there's moments it, it, it's in there yeah yeah but it's very much that's why i like this episode is you have a lot of different people doing a specific thing of, of autobiography um, and doing kind of like you said, the Rosetta stone thing, but through that showing their auteur nature, like who they are as a filmmaker is like, how would you do your childhood story? Like you said, with the Palma, very, very different, you know, or Spielberg or, um, or James Gray. Well, I was going to say, cause the other two we have this year also, sort of explore the duology that we just laid out is that James Gray, again, is very much literalizing yeah. his time as a young Jewish kid growing up in Queens. Very in Philip Roth kind of feel to very it. Very Philip yeah. Roth. Um, I mean, Anthony Hopkins is basically playing the same character as Judd Hirsch in yeah. The Fablemans. He's the old, wise Jewish grandfather um, who tells, you know, the kids stories about everything from like, you know, the, the was it the... Ottomans or whatever coming in and slaughtering Jews while they were still living there. Um, but again, it's more stories of dead Jews and then about embracing life and then also not being racist, frankly, and yeah. standing up to the Inter intersectionality and like we fight together. Yeah, because oppression. Because the thing I really like about Armageddon Time is that it's way thornier than the other couple movies we're talking, even more so than uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because. It's about a kid realizing his own privilege yeah. and sort of ascending past like his working class background. And then what happens when that privilege is first revealed to him in his friendship with this young black kid who's more or less homeless. Yeah. Um, and at the end being given a choice and then explained to by his father in by Jeremy strong, who's doing like straight up like an Alan Arkin impersonation. Yeah. It's such a strange performance. Um, but basically being like, Hey, you're white. What do you, and now you, you, you got off scot-free from, from getting in trouble. You now get a leg what do you up. do with that, that light, you know, that privilege and with that advantage, but it also has fucking Fred Trump and Marianne Trump lurking in the dark. John Deal. Ooh. And he, Miami, he's awesome. Dude, when he, when they did that crazy silhouette shot of him with the hair and everything, as oh. I was like, is that Trump? Are we going to bring Trump into this New York movie? And then they full on have Jessica Chastain play Marianne Trump while she's working in the office of the for district one attorney scene. for one scene and doing a full on like speech to his like, uh, you know, prep school classroom. And I, dude, have I ever told you that I went to school with Eric Trump? No. Yeah. So like, this is like me having met Todd field. Yeah. Like it's that level of like, what? So I went to a boarding school. I went to two, I didn't know that. I yeah. went to two different prep schools. 
One was called the Hill School. It was in uh, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Um, and it was straight up like Dead Poet Society, all boys school. Um, everyone from like me who came from a background where my dad was like an insurance salesman or my mom was a nurse. Like I was the James Gray character in this. Yeah. And this gave me hard flashbacks to this to there was a Saudi Arabian prince who went there and then Eric Trump in wow. seventh grade. Is he close to our age? Yeah, he's, he's like, I was in ninth grade, I want to say, okay. and he was two years below me. Okay. Like he's he about, he's like my age. He's a year younger than me, I think. Yeah. I remember Eric Trump had one friend. Um, it was in my second year of going to the Hill School, I believe, if memory serves. Uh, he had one friend. He was like one of the weird like Middle Eastern princes. Go figure. Um, and... He was on the seventh grade, what we called lower form football team. Like B team kind of shit? Just like what the, the seventh and eighth grade team. Oh, okay. Basically, okay. you know? And like, I remember they all knew that he was Donald Trump's kid. And like, they would do that drill where like, uh, you, you form a circle and you put someone in the middle and they, the coach blows the whistle. It's like some people have more unwoke terms for it than I, it's I like kill. Getting. It's like the kill drill or uh, whatever you smear want to call the, it. Smeal that insert. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but then the coach blows the whistle and like he, like they all run at him from like different angles, like one at a time and like lay him out. Dude, they would always put Eric Trump in the middle and just Fuck this kid Destroy up. him. Like, yeah. absolutely maul him to where I found Eric Trump one day sitting in the locker room, like, crying because they beat him up so bad. And I remember asking him, like, hey, man, you doing okay? And he's like, yeah, it's just they pick on me all the time. And just, like, being like, it's all right. Like, you'll just... You'll... Well, he turned out great. Almost so. like my little weird, like, <laughs> it gets better moment. But, like, I have that memory with Eric Trump, who was just this little dumpy kind of fat kid with, like, weird braces and, like, with pimply face and just a little outsider and, like, who everybody used to pick on. And now he's a fucking supervillain. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it, you know, James Gray, we thought, is not my favorite filmmaker. And I haven't seen everything, but... Um, like Ad Astra didn't work for me. I have, I've always found him a little bit obvious sometimes. Um, and, and this movie is like, if the reviews are all agree with me, if once I've read or this is pretty, there's some, it's, it's pretty, on the nose. It's on the nose. Um, it also, um, I was reading an African-American critic kind of talk about, this is the ultimate of like white guilt, like sim simplistic white guilt. I don't know that it's simplistic though. That's the place where I disagree with the movie. I think it's quite thorny. And, like, tough to parse because it is, like, straight ahead, like, what it's giving you. Yeah. But at the same time, it's asking a question that a lot of white people, frankly, don't want to acknowledge, too, is that they have a privilege just by being born with a certain skin color. And, like, it, it's James Gray acknowledging that and looking back with kind of, like, a, did I fuck up? kind of cadence you yeah. know and i think that's i don't know it's real easy you know to sit there and be like well that's that's simplistic and it's like well no it's a guy literally applying like auto critique to himself like that's not easy yeah no, that's true and, and, I, and i really did like the film and i think the highlight is um is anthony hopkins and um, he's so good in this he's really amazing and you know there, there's a great scene too when they 
this could only be from reality where they go to their father, they go to his grandfather's funeral and they stay in the car and it's, and basically you have Jeremy strong doing a eulogy for his father-in-law to his sons. That's so and, good. And it's just like, and then he's like, and he's like, I'll miss, basically he's saying like, it's on me now to be the, the father. And Jeremy strong has two great scenes. They're both in the car in, in the this yeah. movie. Um, and the rest of his scenes are weird. Yeah, the one where he beats him is just like insane, and it's like whoa, um, it's real intense. Yeah, he like beats the shit out of the kid, and like with a with a bell. It's it's pretty terrifying. Um, well, the I kept thinking of you know you were saying the Judd Hirsch character being similar um, to Anthony Hopkins. I completely agree. Is um, Leo the lion from Last Picture Show? Uh, the mm. um, the Ben Johnson character of again, the end of an era that once this man dies, this way of life is over. Right. That, that in the very McCarthy sense, uh, that, uh, Hopkins is carrying the fire. And when that fire goes out, the soul is with our soul of the country, the soul of the people is lost. And I do feel like, again, Armageddon time, which they're, they're, they're quoting the song, but is in 1980, we, America lost its soul. He, this kid feels like he did as well. James Gray feels like he did. And we never got back on track. Um, and again, it's kind of obvious, but also I agree. It is this kind of like very important moment, you know, where America had a choice and they made the wrong one. And we have not turned back since. Um, Reagan was the one who turned us, pitted sides against each other completely. He's like, the Democrats are the devil. There's no cooperation. It began there. And, and the racism being allowed on a very public scale has just continued that, that crested with Trump. Um, and to put Trump in it is not accidental, of course, you know, well, and Giuliani in the background and yeah. stuff too. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah. like they're it, all his New York. Yeah. Well, his, it, his cleaning up of New York. Yeah. It's super similar to once upon a time in Hollywood, how like Manson's lurking in the background to where he's the signal of this, this kind of darker change that's going to occur very soon. Like Fred Trump and Marianne Trump and Giuliani, like they're all the harbingers or the the three horsemen of doom here, kind of rolling into to Queens, New York, saying everything's going to change now. Yeah, and also in beyond race, just the idea of class, right? Is like you exactly are, you yeah. are all expected to be, and all the kids in this room you imagine are these like sat Goldman Sachs. VI, you know, CEOs today, you shooting know, spitballs. Yeah. And they it all call started, our kids the N word. It like, started there. Yeah. You know, and it was, they were, you know, and that scene where you first meet Fred Trump and they're in a hallway, it's his first day at school, this new school. And James Gray's character kind of passes and Fred Trump does not work for the school. He's just there. To he's do just it. lurking. He's, is he smoking in, a cigarette? Too? No, he's just in the shadows. No yeah, cigarette. Like, he's just in the shadows. He's this, this fucking like goblin. Yeah, he's like this monster. And he comes out and he's basically like, what's yeah. your name? Because he can see he's Jewish. Yeah. And he's like, Graf, what kind of name is that? And then he tells me, he's like, oh. Yeah. And you just see it's like, oh, man. Like Again, it's, it's crazy that James Gray and Steven Spielberg sort of made the same movie in the same year. With with completely different tones, completely different tones, but kind of the same yeah ending resolve. Let's say when it's our boy Darius Kanji shot Armageddon time, it's gorgeous. Oh my god, it's an amazing it's looking view, movie. that low light that only he's so good at. Well, and also Anne Hathaway is his mother. She's is quite good. She's great. Yeah, she's good. As much as I give Jeremy Strong shit, I still admit that I like Jeremy Strong. 
probably because of all of his extern eccentricities yeah. like i consider them a feature and not a bug like i you know me i, I like performers who are weird and, and problematic yeah and yeah like maybe doesn't always work all the time but i'd rather you do a thing than just kind of sleepwalk through the movie and then anthony hopkins is kind of like the brad pitt of this movie to where like he just shows up he's really not even doing like a big ass performance. He's just doing Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. And he just is like, I'll tell you some stories about Jews being murdered. I'll tell you racism is bad. I'll watch you shoot this rocket off. Then I'm going to die. Yep. <laughs> you want to get into questions? Let's do it. with questions about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Martin, top three QT. Go. I mean, again, Once Upon a Time, uh, number one, close second, Pulp Fiction. Um, number three is a tough one for me. Um, I would probably say Kill Bill Volume 2 or just Kill Bill. Um, and if not, that a close second, would be, but close four to be Death Proof. Um and those are just the ones that that get me every time. Um, but yeah, I mean, once upon a time, we just spoke a lot about Pulp Fiction was a film that changed it, filmmaking it, entirely. It changed. Well, it, Pulp Fiction was kind of a movie like we're talking about movies that make you want to make movies. Like I was that age, and I was like, you can do this. And it was so culturally important, and I and I was not allowed to see it for so long, and I built up this this mythos around like mystique. Around yeah, it. yeah, I was like, oh my god, it's this thing. And when I finally saw it, actually, I think it really delivers. And that kind of dialogue, and when you're like when you're younger, and I was in middle school, I think when I finally saw it for the first time, I'm like, oh man, like I want to write like this, and I don't anymore. I don't think anyone can be Tarantino, but that one just blew me away. And then Kill Bill. I was a sophomore in college and it was the first film since Jackie Brown and everyone was losing their shit and all my, I was a film major. So we're all like talking about it daily, like daily. And we, I remember seeing the first one with my best buddy and we're just like, holy shit. And then for me, volume two, I just, I prefer it's the more talky one. Have um, you ever seen the whole bloody affair I, I have print? not, no. I have. Okay. I've seen the can print uh, with the French subtitles attached to it. Wow. Exhumed played it. It was Tarantino's personal print. It was the first time it had been played since it premiered in Cannes. Wow. They played it for three days in Philadelphia. So I got to see the full whole bloody affair, like 35 millimeter cut. Oh, shit. And it's fucking awesome. It, it made the movie inseparable. In my head, like, there is no volume one and volume right. two. To me, it's just Kill Bill. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, 
but and then and then Death Proof. I remember when I first saw it, um, when I saw Grindhouse in the theater. I went. It was Friday. I worked. I was a bartender at that point in 2007, and I got tickets for like 10 a.m. on Friday. So I had to I had to close the bar that night. I'm like, I'm not. I don't want to hear shit from anybody. I'm seeing it the fir- earliest I can see it. And I remember liking at that time Planet's Hair more. So I thought it kind of fit the bill of what they were trying to do with Grindhouse and Tarantino made a Tarantino movie, <laughs> like a full on by itself Tarantino movie. But since then it's become one of my, my favorites um, specifically all the hangout stuff. You also know my uh, adoration for hot rod culture and like old muscle cars and like that aesthetic Kurt Russell. and Kurt Russell, like it kind of has everything I want from a movie. And I think specifically, I like the first part, but I think the second group of women is all their dialogue is so amazing. Like, their whole set of also their, their filmmakers and all their just discussions of that. I think Rosario like, Dawson's so hot. She's so hot and she's so her, like she's so charming and funny. Has, has one of the greatest shots of Tarantino's whole career of that long close up of her in the passenger seat when they're chasing stuntman Mike. Yes. And you watch her face go from like terror to pure joy at what they're doing. And it just holds on her and holds on her. And like you watch her perform in that moment. It reminds me a lot of that long close up of Mark Wahlberg and Boogie Nights when they're in Alfred Molino, like the drug dealer's house and it just zooms in on him and you watch the gravity of the situation that they're in kind it's of overtake opposite. him. And it's the opposite. It's taking him in yeah. the other way of like, oh, fuck, where's my life gone to? But here it's it's her just discovering like pure bliss in the violence. And it kind of sums up like Tarantino's whole approach to violence is that like this can be fun. It's electric. It's also, I mean, it's a love letter to Austin in a lot of ways, too. I mean, yeah. was, and I hadn't really watched it a lot since I moved here. Um, and now that I live here and I know like the spots, it's kind of, it's cool. You know, it's both a love letter, but also it feels like a love letter from a tourist. Oh, like if you actually live here, like where else doesn't have a fucking porch and Texas chili parlor is not that great. Neither did yet. I'll back you down off that ledge, but I'll say no, it was Texas chili parlor. Doesn't have a porch. If you've ever been in Wero's, it doesn't look like that. It's on on Congress. No. Yeah. Like it's, it's totally different. Like you can tell he's trying to do the landmark thing, but it's like, ah, you got it half right. Yeah. And I don't mean to speak too ill of Texas Chili Parlor because the people there are so fucking nice. But dude, the food fucking rules okay. too. And also the high life is like two dollars there. The chili's actually super spicy. I got I got uncomfortably drunk there one time and puked all over their bathroom. So I do. Own That's an not the Texas Chili Parlor's fault, baby. No, I'm I'm blaming myself. I'm I'm trying to now put myself. <laughs> I take back what I said. I just have, that's a bad memory where I had like six shots of fireball and had four margaritas. Oh my during God. South by. I almost threw up just ha- <laughs> hearing you say that. God. So are we, oh, top three before I do my top three, yeah. are we including true romance? Let's just do his directed. Okay. Well, yeah. the reason I ask is because true romance is like the first Tarantino autobiography, right? True. To where it's about Uh-oh. him writing, like he is the Christian Slater character and it's about one man's journey to be break into Hollywood. Like once upon a time in Hollywood sort of circles back to the beginning in a weird way, because true romance was always like the fantastical version of Tarantino to where now he's just 
transmuted that tendency to want to talk about himself all the time into uh, film and book form, let's mm, say. Yeah. But we won't include it. But here, actually, to use it as a, a jumping off point to talk about another 2022 movie we may have neglected in the last segment, like True Romance reminds me a lot of Crimes of the Future, mm. only it's... Cronenberg is using like his own observations in his own life, like hit like Saul Tenser straight up being the stand in for Cronenberg, this aging artist who's living amongst nothing but like copycats of his work. Like he's the OG. He's the one who invented body you know, surgery. <laughs> yeah. Surgery art and body horror. It essentially, and how like Leah to being his great, you know, collaborator and the woman in his life, like, that's him talking about like mm. all of the women who have like like his own wife like collaborated with him for years and his years sister. and years up until his death. Uh, his sister Denise Cronenberg like this is the first film in however many years like that she doesn't collaborate on because she sadly passed away too. Mm. Carol Spear was his longtime production uh, designer. Production designer like he's a guy who's actively acknowledging that women like left their fingerprints all over his body of work too. And without them, like he's kind of nothing. And like, she is the one that stabilizes him like in his life. All like the Cliff time. Booth. Yeah. She's like like yeah. Cliff Booth. Yeah. Like she, she tries to keep him down to earth. Like I love fucking crimes of the future. It's one of those movies oh, that I feel like kind of came and went and it's so sad because you're like, it's David Cronenberg. It's possibly David Cronenberg's last fucking movie and really nobody outside of the diehards really went out to see it i yeah i mean we did the whole episode on him which i was so happy to do i know we that's another he and he and man for us probably our two main crossovers and de palma's my other one yeah yeah. and de palma and then um and for me probably you know bedeker hawks you know but like i this film is I I again kind of like with Spielberg like the last few from Cronenberg hadn't blown me away. I really didn't like Maps of the Stars, and, nah, and I and, think it's his worst. Yeah, and to see him come back in such a assured way and such again, but a very personal way. Because remember you'd seen it before me. We were sitting there at your house, and I go, "Oh, is this is just him just doing about being him a filmmaker and being an aging film?" He goes, "Okay, you get it." And like once you once that's the key, and it all makes complete sense. Yeah, once you lock into what's actually going on, you're like, "Oh shit!" And I was like, and you know, I was actually talking to a friend at work who loves the film too about as a great trans allegory of of the end is him kind of accepting letting his body change the way it's supposed to. But I don't not sure that's what he's but. That maybe not literally, but it depends on how you view the ending of that movie. And I don't want to spoil it too hard for people because I think there's a negative way that you can view that movie as him giving in to the idea that art and even the way that people quite literally in this case digest art have changed. And it's him accepting the fact that he's at the end of his road and he conforms more or less. So I, I didn't 100% read the trans allegory at all because to me, there's like a negative way that you can read that. And it is about an aging artist being like the world has passed me by. I think, I think it's one of those films that I think similar to actually of all things, invasion of the body snatchers can be seen as a fear of um, communism, but also a fear of American conformity. Like you could kind of change the lens and turn it both ways. I think similar with this one, the, the new movement of people who are changing or mutating and changing their bodies to be able to digest plastic 
um, to me feels like the future. And a lot of the art community is trying to hold that back. Like they're trying to kill these people. They don't want that to happen. And I think it's him kind of accepting that like to be part and change with the times as well and not holding on so hard. Um, I think there's two ways to kind of view it, but I do understand the negative, the very like heavy negative view as well of giving in and say, well, I guess I'm going to change, but it has that kind of almost transcendent, you know, beatific look on his face as he, as he changes. Um, and that does he change or does he die? I think he changes. Yeah. Like that's the other question to ask. Yeah. There's a man. You could, you could dig into this movie so much. And like, I think I've watched it three times since we did. I watch it a lot. And to have a master that I just, I mean, Videodrome, no joke, like saved my life and like reset my brain when my life is at its worst. And so I owe him a lot. And to see a filmmaker like that back in their prime and back in like their form. And just doing his thing. And Spielberg too. I mean, The Fablemans was that for me. I'm like, oh my God, it's the new masterpiece from Spielberg. I was like literally like screaming to the heavens. I called my parents and I was like, guys, I just saw the movie. You gotta see it. Uh, I just I love that feeling. I love being excited by movies again. Like, sure. There's really no feeling like it. Similar, I mean, in a different way to seeing like Maverick, you know, and getting that movie is like, oh my god, that you can make movies like this still that excite me in this way in a completely different. Well, side Maverick of is delivering the 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 sensation that Sammy Fableman's going through while watching, yeah. you know, the greatest show on earth is that he's being like, Oh my God, like spectacle can do this on the, the, the biggest screen possible. Yeah. And we're sitting here 11 days away from avatar too. I mean, of a, a great filmmaker, James Cameron though, who, <laughs> you know, the exact day count. Yeah, I do. I'm fucking excited. But another person who is still in that, that mold of like, Movies are spectacle, and and also a guy who does not. The theater is the coliseum. Yeah, and I believe that, and I know you do too. So I'm I'm excited for this year. But no, I mean, Crimes of the Future, Fablemans, those two in particular this year of like two of my favorite filmmakers, both just doing it. Yeah, and doing their thing yeah. specifically. Yeah. They're like this. If this is my last movie, like. Crimes of the Future feels like Cronenberg being like, this is my last movie. Oh, it's a, it's a swan song. 100%. To the point that I couldn't believe he announced another one after it came out to where I was like, you could just use that as the period to your sentence, man. Like, you're fucking 80. Like, but, we're good. But I'll take 10 more movies at yeah, the same Yeah, if you want to keep churning them out, Please. cool. Um, so top three Tarantino for me, Once Upon a Time is one. Mm, Jackie Brown. That's what I thought, yeah. Two. Three is also very, very hard for me. Um, probably Bastards. Mm. Although I don't rewatch Bastards as much as I should. I should say Kill Bill because every time I do watch it, it blows my hair back quite a bit. <laughs> but like, it's one of those movies where I, I discount it almost. Where I'm like, oh, Kill Bill's pretty good. And then I watch it again and I go, oh no, that's right. Kill Bill fucking rules. Um, I love death proof like a lot. The only one I know for sure is not number three. And I know this is blasphemous to some is reservoir dogs. I still consider that to be, well, not his worst movie towards the bottom of the list. Just I, because I, I feel like he evolved past that point. It's amazing for what it is. It's a young man's still, it's, film. A, it's a four and a half star out of five movie. It's great. This is not trying to take anything away from fucking reservoir dogs. It's just that like you compare the technical skill in once upon a time in Hollywood or even kill bill to reservoir dogs. And you're like, well, he just, he, he ascended, you know, 
I'm going to go with Pulp Fiction for three. Sweet. Hell yeah. For the simple fact that, like, Pulp Fiction is the one that I've definitely watched the most. I mean, just through sheer time alone, like, watching on VHS a bazillion times when it first came out, seeing it at rep screenings, watching it on cable, knowing every fucking line from it. Like, it's a movie that if you put on right now, like, I would know scene for scene exactly what happens. Like, it's tough to take that off the list. There's a, a brand new 4K disc steelbook, I guess, that is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Like, I was reading an article about it. So, for you, uh, you collectors out there, supposedly it's a really awesome uh, print of it. So, I'm going to pick that up. Okay. Yeah. So, double feature. I'm going to go off one that I haven't mentioned. I kind of wanted to save one. Mm. Um, and I'm actually going to do, just with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, I'm going to do Ed Wood. Um, oh, that's a good one. I really, really love this movie. It's actually my favorite Tim Burton movie. Um, I love movies about making movies. I love movies about classic Hollywood. Um, I think it's also the guys who wrote Dolomite. The script is perfect. I'm a huge fan of Lugosi, and I love his later years played by uh, Martin Landau, Oscar-nominated. Um, he won for it. He won uh, Best Supporting. I love the. Um, I watched this amazing um, interview with him about building out the character. And he goes, the first thing he had to do was train his face to move like Lugosi. He goes, when I smile, my eyes open. When Lugosi smiles, his squint. He had to do all this like facial training, and he, he blows it away. Um, and it's one of my favorite um, Johnny Depp roles. I think he's just so charming and sweet uh, and captures that side of probably who was more of a creepy guy um, who got into some weird stuff. Towards, he was a weird guy. Yeah. It definitely in, whitewashes Ed Wood quite a bit. Yes. Um, but it also has some of the best quotable lines. I just like, you know, Karloff, sidekick, fuck you. You know, and, <laughs> and every time I drink whiskey, I'm like, hey, you throw me that whiskey. You know, like, again, you're talking about lines that just stick with you. Like, yeah. this is one of those. My brother and I quote it to each other all the time. I was at... Um, Abba practice the other day, and I just started quoting. It's like, home, I have no home. Hunted, despised, living like an animal. Like, I have that whole movie, you know, front to back. And it's the reason that um, Eddie Murphy wanted to do Dolomite with them. Um, because he had seen Ed Wood and was like, I want to do that with Rudy Ray Moore. And Didn't technically Eddie Murphy already make his Ed Wood with Bowfinger? I love Bowfinger. Right? I, I like that movie Aren't a lot. they pretty similar? But I would do Ed Wood, and then if we're doing like the kind of childhood thing, I would do Fanny and Alexander, which is another great film about the view of your parents from like a child's perspective. And I would do the bleak. I, I would do the full like uh, what the TV the cut, TV miniseries the, cut, eighteen hour long, just the fastbender cut. Oh <laughs> fuck yeah! I mean, I'm dude, I'm Swedish man, and I love me some Nordic melancholy. Just, just fucking hit me with that all day long. How about you, Hooper? Oh, dude. Like, of course. To me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Duh. You know, if if you have, you know, Cliff and Rick being Bert and Hal stand-ins, well, I mean, Bert playing Hal for Hooper. As a love letter to his yeah, friend. Yeah, as a love letter to his friend who's directing. Like, to me, it's the only choice. Like, also, give me any excuse to watch fucking Hooper. Like, it's so good. It's possibly Burt's we've covered this in depth obviously on our Burton <laughs> and Howell we'll do it again episode and we will <laughs> do it all over again but um yeah I mean I think it's possibly the most charming Burt Reynolds performance mm. um it has some of the greatest stunts it's funny it's a movie about making movies it's a movie about male friendship yep. it's just 
it's everything. It's you know, it is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's just the Hal Needham version of it. It's oh, it's fucking great. It's so good. So instead of remake, which doesn't make any sense for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, let's do this. If you could pick any filmmaker, a living goal. or dead, oh dead, yeah, oh shit, to tell their own story. Who would it be? You know my answer. I want to do the Bedecker one. We oh, talked yeah, about the this. bullfighter one would we, be fucking we great. We talked about this idea of kind of doing big fish, and it's him like telling the tales oh, what are yeah. true and what are real. Like, again, print the Why legend. haven't we written that movie yet? I think we should do it, for real. Yeah. I want to write that with you. Like, I have his autobiography upstairs, which is we can both read. It's, it's like not online. It was $120 on, on eBay, but... I have no regrets. Um, and that was the last movie that he was trying to get made, too, was that documentary about bullfighters, right? Matador or whatever? No, it was it was the name, um, his friend, who died while they were right. making it. Exactly. Uh, and they finished it, kind of. Um, but I think I would do a film and basically do the Taylor Hackford interview and have like a, a young Taylor Hackford or stand-in be interviewing this aging filmmaker who Hollywood has kind of forgotten about. Oh man, that's such a good idea. And then it's him like telling his story. Um, again, a lot of it's apocryphal, um, but all the stories about him, like getting in fights with Harry Cohn at Columbia and just like his friendship with John Wayne. There's just, again, once upon a time in Hollywood pulling in real people and having like famous actors play their version of these very famous people would be, I think a blast. Um, who would yours be? So mine is sort of a cheat because it's a script I've actually been working on for oh. several years is I wanted so once about once upon a time in Hollywood it kind of ignited this whole idea in my brain about what era of filmmaking I would want to make a once upon a time in Hollywood about and it was the most obvious one as anybody who's listened to this podcast a bunch of knows it's 80s New York uh, specifically late 70s, early 80s New York, the kind of underground filmmaking that was going on there. And I wanted to make a movie about specifically Bill Landis, the uh, longtime grindhouse connoisseur who ended up publishing Sleazoid Express to my, in my opinion, the greatest movie zine of all time. Uh, one of the greatest collections of movie criticism possibly the greatest of all time, especially for the sort of trash and cult cinema that we talk about. Uh, but my movie was, and it's still a work in progress, but it's about, you know, Bill Landis teaming up with Andy Milligan, the notorious gay underground horror filmmaker who would shoot movies in Staten Island for like $7,000 with his friends and stuff, and then self-distribute them to the grindhouses around 42nd Street and who uh, Bill Landis struck up a very real friendship with in reality, um, you know, it's about how they team up to hunt a killer in New York. Basically, like, insert Bill Landis and Andy Milligan into cruising, and that's the movie I've been writing for the last couple years. But it becomes, like, a very detailed... Uh, history lesson a lot the same way that once upon a time in Hollywood is mm. about uh, that period in American you know film history. This is about like the grindhouses on 42nd street, how that 
you know, created its own kind of ecosystem for both like distribution and exhibition, how guys like Andy Milligan could shoot movies for no money and get them played there, how that fostered an entire artistic community that kind of existed there and how that bled out into, you know, the rest of the United States and even Hollywood itself. And even how stuff like, like I have a whole chapter in it that's told because, uh, there was a time period where in Fangoria magazine, there was a letter that was sent in from one of the readers in the early eighties. It was like, Hey, does anybody remember Andy Milligan? And basically what happened? He was this guy who made these really low budget weirdo move, like outsider movies, but like, did he die or like what's going on? And Bill Landis saw that letter and tracked down Andy Milligan and interviewed him for Fangoria. So like, I use excerpts from that actual interview, like in the script itself and stuff. And it's just for me, like one of the ultimate, like passion project nerd things that I know nobody, nobody would ever make because a, it would cost entirely too much money to replicate early eighties, New York city. But it's all about how like they intersected with not only this art community, but also like Sharon Mitchell and that porn community, mm. like Bill Lustig is a character in it at one point. Larry Cohen's probably around. Larry Cohen's floating around on the fringes. It is my once upon a time in Hollywood. It's just in New York. It, it's funny. Like both of our examples are the things we love the most. Like yeah. that would be like, that's all your favorite shit, you know? And yeah, only- what would yours be called? Um, I would actually just quote up from the book, Win in Disgrace. That was the name of his biography, Win in Disgrace, which I think is a fucking awesome name. Nice. So I think it was like when he went to basically went to Mexico and he learned a bullfight. Um, and I would do it. I, I said like Big Fish, but do like, like you said, almost like chapters as well of the life. And you're like, trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Yeah, exactly. And because he was just this pompous, like, a know, true raconteur. Yeah, like I mean, he was a braggadocious, like, guy. And I think probably 30%. But it's like, I love that. I love the image he created of himself. Um, what would yours be called? Midnight Marquee. Oh, yeah. It's the name of the actual zine that he's writing. Because you can't use Sleazoid Express or whatever. But it's So I was like, what would be a great name for like an 80s underground like horror movie zine? And I was like, oh, Midnight Marquee. Yeah, I love that. I think I think that I love what you're talking about the kind of microcosm of like just live allowing audiences to live in that world, you know, or or what a lot of these films let you do. They really, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's texture too about just being in a space in a time, you know, beyond the story it tells. Just like being able to live in that, and like Tarantino is one of the best at like you said the hangout thing. We get so much of that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of just allowing us to live in that space and see so many different angles of it. You can practically smell it. Oh, yeah. Like, when they're in Musso and Frank's, like, you know what those cocktails smell like. You know there's steak, like, wafting in from the kitchen. And, like, it's just... Or even, like, Cliff's trailer when you get in there. You know exactly that that's, like, boot stank and beer in there. And stale fucking chili and pan. Yeah. Well, I went to Musso and Frank's last year, and it was just everything I could have hoped for. I still never been. We got to go together. It's it's the the servers are so fun. Like they because it's all old people, right? It's all it's old. like guys who have just worked there forever. Yeah, all the bartenders are like these like these like famous dudes, and they're like I'm like yeah, we'll have a Manhattan this and this for like six of us. He goes cool, just goes and it was just done like forty five seconds. And he was like, remember he old school remembers your name. They all have their red jackets on, and there's some tables there like. 
rich business people are actually there for real. And there's like tourists like us who are like, look, just go, just go a good time. Our server knew why we were all there. It's like Hunter and my friend John. Because it's right off of Hollywood Boulevard. It's right there. Yeah. It doesn't look like it should be there. Everything else around has changed. Yeah. And it's, dude, it's such a good time. And to, they're like, they're like, that's where Cliff Booth sat. Or that's where they were. They, they would say that when he came in. So, Paddy Duke. Paddy Duke. <laughs> so face melter. Yay. Nay. No. Um, what? For a once upon a time? Yeah. Uh, in the action sense, no. Um, but I think I just I wonder if there are some people this might not work on. Again, the the amount of people who were not taken with it. Um, yeah, but I don't account for dumb people. You're right. I mean, I love this movie, but it may not be face melter status. You're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> You, you're just out of your fucking mind. <laughs> this is a pure face melter for the ending alone. If you walk out of that movie and you are not thrilled to be in the presence of cinema, I don't want to talk to you. Okay. If we're saying it in that, then I will agree with like you. It, I feel like it has everything though. It has one of the greatest, two of the greatest movie star performances of all time. One is an actual like feat of true acting. Like we haven't even gotten into like how fucking good Leo is yeah, he's in great. this movie. Like this is his, his peak, his, his nexus, whatever you want to call it. The whole easy breezy scene outside oh, yeah. of some of his best acting. And then it leads into like the great, you know, scene that Rick Dalton and Jim Stacy share on the set of Lancer. Like that whole sequence is peak. The great like improv like breakdown that he has after it and then nailing that fucking take. Like, dude, Leo's so fucking good in this movie. And then you have Brad Pitt just doing the Brad Pitt thing that we already talked about. All of the stuff that's floating around him. Margaret Qualley, oh, you yeah. know, showing up, giving like that whole performance. You know, Pacino stealing scenes. I don't even know who the guy who plays Sam Wanamaker is, but oh, he's he great. just swoops in and just fucking overtakes <laughs> an entire team. Room, <laughs> room, <laughs> hell's angels. I want a Zapata mustache. I don't want TV cowboy. I want you to act. I want to see Caleb. Okay, you're right. I I was thinking of it in the wrong Evil, way. Evil, sexy Hamlet. Yes, yes. No, like, it's just, it gives you everything. And plus all the stuff that you've already outlined where you just live in this movie. Like, this is kind of like his dazed and confused. Oh, yeah. it just totally transports you American to graffiti, a time and very, place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and you just hang out in it. You relish it. And plus, like, it's, it's like, obviously this isn't face melter qualification, but I think just the layer of, like, it acting as a work of moving film criticism is pretty impressive onto its own right if you want to like take that part of your brain and apply it to the face melter kind of like mentality but dude like the fucking ending of this movie is like some of his greatest if not his greatest violence of all time it was so disturbing and violent that there were people online who were like were they too mean to the Manson girls and it's like no you fucking idiots they killed somebody in real life I relish every second of Cliff Booth smashing that stupid bitch's face on that telephone. It was fucking great. I loved him. Kill- like that whole standoff with Tex Watson. I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. No. Nah, I was dumber than that. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. Like I, I, it'll ultimately go down as not being a face melter because you've already dissented, but I'm telling you on this point, you are wrong. <laughs> and everybody who dislikes this movie is incorrect. Well, that's true. Well, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good note for us to end on. (laughs) 
if you don't like this, I'm sorry for yelling. You're wrong. <laughs> but I'm just really angry. I'm just really pissed off right now. So I'm going to be honest with you with the holidays and stuff coming up. We're not even sure what we have for you next time. There will be a next time. In the meantime, I hope that you ch- check out the uh, two part interview series that we oh, recently yeah. dropped that uh, our buddy Brandon had uh, with John Hyams and Scott Atkins talking about Day of Reckoning, uh, the great Universal Soldier movie from 10 years ago. Starring Dolph. <laughs> so while me and Martin get our shit together, uh, please do know that we are coming back in the future, maybe with some Killer Santas, maybe with some David Ayer. Who knows? Maybe some James Cameron. Maybe some James Cameron for you know Avatar, The Way of Water. 11 days. Yeah. <laughs> Huge boner. <laughs> But you'll have to tune in next time to Secret Handshake to see what we got. Stay tuned. Thanks, y'all. On August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground smelling sweet. Take my hand.